Hello and welcome back to the DMA Starred Employment Law Podcast and we're returning with a new episode sooner than expected uh, in light of the announcements in the last few days in relation to well, two key things in relation to the um, retained e-law arrangements and the so-called sunset clauses uh, which we did a previous podcast on which relates to the removal of EU laws from our statute books and um, at the, around the same time as that being announced we had some announcements and now in the last um, day or two consultation paper around some proposals to reform employment laws and so lots to talk about and luckily I'm, I've been able to get uh, Rustam Tata and Stephen Tenho back for this session because it was the three of us who talked about the EU revocation bill in the first place and we can uh, get their takes just initial reactions to some of these announcements try and cut through and help everybody to work out what the real substance is in these announcements and the things to keep an eye out for in uh, in, in our employment and employer circles. So um, hello, both of you. Welcome. Welcome back. Uh, good to see you again. Shall we start? Let's start with the uh, EU revocation bill and the changes to to that. Obviously, when we when we all met before, we were talking about 31st of December this year, 31st December 2023 and being this big step change a sort of cliff edge for EU law. Questions for you, Stephen. Is something still going to happen on 31st December? And if so, how is it different to what we thought was going to be happening on 31st December in light of this announcement? Well, well, Adam, the government has reduced a rather more limited bonfire of EU legislation than it originally envisaged. But to take us back a, a, a small way, um, in 2018, the, there was the, the government passed the EU Withdrawal Act and one of the things that act did was to keep in place a huge number of uh, regulations, statutory instruments, not acts of parliament, but statutory instruments, um, which were um, the consequence of EU um, regulations and directives over many years. Uh, we needed a properly functioning statute book. And unless this law continued, um, we would whole areas of the economy would not be regulated. Uh, move forward four years to 2022 and the uh, retained EU law um, bill has been proposed and what that means is that as from the 31st of December this year uh, all legislation which is derived from um, EU law other than acts of parliament themselves will be sunsetted to use the, a dreadful word. Now, that seemed at the time to be rather ambitious. And what has now happened is that section one of that bill, which sunsetted these pieces of secondary legislation, has now been replaced by reference to a schedule of 600 pieces of secondary legislation, which are going to be sunsetted on the 31st of December of this year. And the others will survive beyond that date and will presumably be abolished over a great uh, deal longer period of time. Um, so it seems that the government has um, taken a step back from its original rather ambitious approach. And what we're seeing now is instead of a wide number of uh, large number of EU um, derived pieces of legislation going on the 31st of December, most will survive. Yeah, well, I, I think maybe Rustin, they were listening to you 
in government circles because I, I know from our podcast we did before on this subject I'm sure it was was you that was talking about you know the concern about doing this at breakneck speed everything falling away in one instant and the risks associated with that it's, it seems to be a real softening of the position is it overall a positive thing from your perspective yeah, I, I, I don't claim to have influenced government, and I think Stephen and I were certainly of one mind when we were uh, talking last time just about it seeming somewhat reckless. And I think politically, in fact, we see the vote in the House of Lords just this week uh, around that uh, in terms of uh, ensuring that there is more effective scrutiny taking place before we sort of just ditch things. So I think, yes, it's it's certainly a change. And again, politically, over the last few days, we we can see the fallout from some of that it, it it is a shift in the same way perhaps that the Windsor agreement uh, a little earlier on this year is probably a shift away from what what might see as sort of Brexit purism yes do we still have that change Ruston you mentioned when we last met around case law and the supremacy of EU case law decisions in our domestic courts and tribunals in the sense that there was going to be a change towards having a referral system you could effectively fast track to a higher court in the UK to say we want to depart from the EU law position on this thing for it, for it, essentially we don't like the EU law binding authority we would like the Supreme Court or, or maybe a court below that to look at it Can, is that still going to be a change in approach from yeah I mean as I, I understand it as I understand it that that's to remain in place although I think it probably should be paraphrased if I may slightly differently from the court saying we don't like it it's rather the court seeking guidance in a similar and parallel way to what used to be the old article 177 reference to the ECJ mm. or a domestic court to say well we're aware that the European provision says this can you help us understand how it should be interpreted and applied and it's a very similar uh, we're slightly uncertain here and we can see that it has ramifications um, and that's because the as it were the lower courts the employment tribunal employment appeal tribunal will otherwise be bound by existing higher level decisions so if they're aware they're bound by it but they can also see that there may now be uncertainty in light of the um, um, uh, revocation legislation that uh, the, the courts and tribunals will as you say Adam be able to make that reference yeah so what we feel feels like we're sensing or we're, we're picking out from this announcement is there's a slowing down of the pace of our transition it may be part of a wide, a sort of slightly more profound shift. You mentioned the Windsor Agreement, Ruston. But interestingly, in terms of, uh, Stephen, you said the 600 pieces of legislation that are lined up for, for New Year's Eve. The dashboard, I think, um, Stephen, you introduced us to the dashboard in our last session. But what's happening to the numbers of, uh, excuse the expression, pieces of legislation that are on the dashboard? Is it is it going down because we're slowing this process down or is it? Well, is it well, going no, up? It, it's going up, Adam, and I think this is part of the government's problem that when it published this bill last year, it wasn't clear what legislation it was abolishing, and it's now done a wider consultation, and the number of relevant pieces of legislation increases all the time. Um, to give you an example, I think that last uh, year when the bill was published, it was thought that 2,400 pieces of legislation would be affected. Um, that figure rose to 3,400 by the beginning of this year. Uh, when I checked last week, it was, I think, 4,870. And I checked this morning and it's 4,915. So in, in just a week, it's gone up by 50. And this is the problem that the government faces. If you want to abolish something, 
it's a good idea to know what you are abolishing. Indeed, um, yeah. That... Do you think there's someone in, sorry, Carl, do you think there's someone in, in Whitehall government that's just sort of has the job of spotting these and just popping them on and slowly one person's adding them as, as the day goes by? Is anyone aware of, of what's actually going on in the system? And, I, and, my, and my your point quite well made is what we're going to do, you know, what are we actually proposing to do with this? Are we just my, taking it away or are we changing it? But my understanding is that the, um, is that each department is looking at the bills that it has and on the dashboard it's broken down by department by department um, and so that is where this is all coming from but the, the difficulty is that the job just gets larger as as time passes and I should make something clear about the schedule to the Act, which now sets out those pieces of legislation which are being abolished. In fact, several of those, if you look carefully at the schedule, and I can't pretend to have been through it all in detail, uh, only parts of the, the, uh, the relevant um, secondary legislation is being abolished. Some other parts are being retained. So although this appears that 600 pieces of legislation are going on the bonfire, in fact, some are being uh, partly put on the bonfire and partly kept for burning later, I, I assume. Um, but the other thing we should make clear is that the other aspects of the bill will, um, will occur on the 31st of December, EU law, the supremacy of EU law will be switched off. Uh, judges will be encouraged to revert to a more English common law attitude towards looking at statutes rather than the purposive uh, approach that uh, EU um, judges use and EU law requires. And the uh, ministers in this country will still be able to restate and amend um, existing legislation, the so-called Henry VIII clauses, these all survive into next year. So it's really quite a lot of the bill, uh, as Russ said, provided it's passed, is still going through. Its its ambitions remain. It's only this aspect of the abolition, the sunsetting of legislation, which um, which is being very very severely diluted. That's good to hear. So I'm glad you said that because it means we can say to listeners, if you haven't heard the previous episode that we did on this, it's not a waste of time going back and listening to it. There's still some relevance. We won't take it off the uh, the past episode list just just yet. Now, if if, if uh, I'm not sure which of us is the most cynical in the room, but a cynic might say that it was an attempt to calm the Brexiteers who were certain to be very unhappy about this softening of approach that was the reason why we also have had these what, what I think we can fairly say are high level announcements from government about how we are going to actively depart from EU employment laws. In some instances, we might say it's technically not necessarily a departure from EU employment laws, but just to, to, to make clear or seek to make clear we're cutting our own path. Post termination restrictions, let's start, let's start with that. Who, which of you is, is keen on this subject wants to give us the, in a nutshell what's going on here? All right, Rustin's pointing at Stephen. Uh, go on, Stephen. Give us the. Well, you, you. I know you do regularly cross swords in, in, uh, or, or on your way to court on these matters. So it, that probably does would be good for you to tell us what, what, what's in essence being proposed. Well, the the government has proposed, amongst other things, um, the other things being set out in its smarter regulation to grow the economy policy document which it published last week in addition which i'm sure we'll discuss in a couple of minutes in addition it has suggested it will legislate to 
um, abolish uh, non-competition restrictive covenants, which means your your employer can prevent you from leaving employment and joining a competitor. Uh, the, they will abo uh, abolish those unless they are less than three months uh, long, uh, sorry, three months or less. Um, and the devil will be in the detail as to precisely how this uh, will operate uh, in practice. But I think it's a rather limited um, announcement. The government did uh, consult about four or five years ago on abolishing restrictive covenants altogether, and that fizzled out. And this appears to be what remains. Um, as a practitioner, it's quite difficult to enforce non-compete clauses. Judges simply don't like them and will only enforce them if they think that the departing employee has in their possession and is using trade secrets or highly confidential information. And so you would have to show that, at least in principle, if you were the employer seeking to enforce such a clause. Um, but if you have that evidence, you can you can bring proceedings against the employee for taking your trade secrets and confidential information and injunct them on those grounds. You don't need an anti-compete um, restrictive covenant to do that. So this is rather limited, I think, in its in its application. And what also appears to be the case is the government will continue to allow employers to go uh, to place employees on garden leave. Um, for example, and so if you think that an employee is going to join a competitor, then stick them on garden leave instead and mm -hmm. and, and make sure you can uh, avoid damage to your business in that way instead. So I think that this looks like it, it, it might have been considerably more radical than it actually is. Yeah, I mean, dare I say, I mean, I, I've, I've vacillated from one view to another about this proposal, but actually might be quite sensible given what you've said in that non-competes are difficult to enforce in any event. You've always got the risk of litigation because there's uncertainty over whether a court will uphold them in any given instance. So if everybody knows you can put three months and no more on that and the focus needs to be on trade secrets, other information. I mean, you and I, Stephen, have been in at least one case where I recall that the court, the risk with the court was its position would be you've got a non-deal, you've got a non-poach, um, you've got six other or how many restrictions here, or how could, why could you possibly need a non-compete? So it chimes in with that. Well, well uh, exactly. And you have, um, uh, and, and to be clear, this doesn't, the government isn't proposing to abolish um, non-soliciting of client clauses or poaching of employee clauses, mm -hmm. which are what tend to be the major concern of most businesses. And the other thing is that we currently have we may currently have a, a difficulty in enforcing a non-compete clause at all. Along comes the government and suggests that it may well be legal, provided that you only limit them to three months. So it might strengthen the employee's position rather than weaken it. Um, and that That is a possibility as well. Indeed. There might be some good news there. Rustam, any thoughts on, on that? Have we covered most of the bases? Uh, I think, I, I, think I, I agree very much with, with what Stephen's uh, outlined there. Uh, yes, it's only... It's only the focus on that non-compete provision. It's just one of the, the provisions, which is usually the first one that almost when you're looking at on either side of the fence, you, you you discount and you really sort of get to the heart of it and say, well, what is it that's actually at risk here? Because what's it a court's going to uphold? I mean, this area obviously is very much around the court's 
upholding and enforcing property rights i mean in a sense that's that that's the sort of common law approach so mm. stephen was saying you know if there's some actual information um, which you can say is confidential and confidential to you or if it's intellectual property which is capable of uh, of protection that that's what the courts are going to do and that's slightly different uh from simply saying you can't go up the road and work for for a competitor and of course you know we used to have non-compete clauses i mean i can remember going back quite a few years i'm sure stephen can can too people used to focus on the geographic extent and is it within yeah. a mile you used yeah. to worry you had all the cases about hairdressers you know was it within half a mile or whatever a radius of a particular office in with a lot of commerce and business now uh, and a bit hackneyed to talk about the global world but obviously digitization i think means that um except in a few service areas it isn't so much about where you are it's really about what you're doing mm. no, that's a really good point because it is it do, does link back to this business interests doesn't it when you talk about the property and the asset interest yeah and yeah. the one thing the courts don't like to do yeah, well you can't argue that your business interest is a dominant market position because the courts won't won't enforce a rule that just simply prevents competition I, it see it feels to me like that's probably the angle behind this announcement that it looks free market supporting it yeah, it's it's, it's a good it's great so yeah no sorry to jump in it's a great yeah. sort of soundbite that we're trying to free up anti-competitive practices um but as i think you know stephen's explained uh, you know uh, in, in some more detail the likelihood of simply being able to use the non-compete of itself and on its own without more is is relatively sort of rare and unusual nowadays mm -hmm. so yeah it's, it's a great thing i mean the risk of course always is that the that the soundbite um appears to present a general position that people understand them to be what the law is whereas in fact there's as we say a lot more a lot more detail, detail to it and that's always to be honest been the case in relation to restrictive covenants i mean the the, the, the barrack room lawyer um is very quick to say non-competes are simply unlawful and of course as we know there's a lot more to it than that well, that, that segues us perfectly, Rustin, I think, on that subject of, you know, do people understand beyond the soundbite to what the actual legal position might be with these changes to some of the other changes that we had, I think. Although before we do that, it might be nice to, even if we just touch on the irony of the smarter regulations, regulations, Stephen, do you want to just give us a quick summary of what the regulations about regulating in a smarter way are really doing? Well, and, this is a this is an announcement last week from the government on the 10th of may um, smarter regulation to govern the economy and it's a policy document it isn't really a regulation it's a kind of announcement um, but essentially it says that the government in future is going to think more carefully about the way that it regulates um, the economy and the things it's going to take into account when doing so in the hope of regulating in to grow the economy um, and I think that it, it really is full of the usual bromides of government and I'm not sure that it really makes much difference to uh, the, the regulations that are going to be proposed in the future by the government um, but it, see, it, it sets out the way the government will now be able to look at regulation now that we've left the um, EU it emphasizes a sovereign approach, our ability to uh, set our own laws. Um, it emphasizes leading from the front with a focus on the future. It emphasizes proportionality. Where markets achieve the best outcomes, they'll be left to move freely and dynamically. They'll check and recognize what works, 
but they'll also set high standards at home and globally. So uh, without being too cynical about this, I, I have heard all of this before, and it's really just the introduction to the rather limited reforms that they have proposed to what was EU-governed employment um, regulation, which I'm sure we'll touch on in a couple of minutes' time. So my own view is it's the usual, we'll try and regulate better in the future than we have in the past. There's a specific reference to too much red tape burdening business, but these are the same references that the government trundled out in the 1980s and the 1990s for those of those listeners who are old enough to remember this. I can't see that there's anything fresh in this. It's just an attempt to reset us as a United Kingdom producing our own regulations and we can do this free from the EU and this is what we're going to do but what we're going to do is as we'll examine now is rather limited it seems to me and again the usual justification is that it saves larger sums of money um, the document quotes the billion pound savings that the, the the changes that are now going to be passed are likely to make but there's absolutely no breakdown of where that billion pounds comes from. It seems to me to be a suspiciously round figure. Um, so sort of figure you might write on the side of a bus. Precisely. Maybe. So so what we've had is this document last week, and what we've got this week is the consultation paper um, about the various changes that are going to be made, which gives a little bit more detail, and I think is a little bit more interesting. Um, yes. But you, you might have had enough of my cynicism and you might want to ask Rustin because he might be a bit more upbeat than I am about the government's motives for this. But one can't help thinking that all this has been published at the same time because the government's desire to have a bonfire of EU regulations has essentially been mm. put on hold for a long time. Yeah. Rustin, your reaction? Yeah, no, I mean, I think... Um... I largely again agree with the, with Stephen, which as as he and I and indeed Adam, you know, isn't always the case. But yes, um, but I think if we come on in a moment to the uh, consultation document that's now been issued in the context of the employment law changes, the first four or five pages are effectively political polemic, saying uh, where government's trying to, I suppose, ride a number of horses, and I guess it was it was ever thus. But very much the introduction talks about how in the UK we have great uh, employment law, employment protection standards, um, and that effectively we'll continue to have those, notwithstanding the fact of departure from the from the EU. As, as you'll know, two of the areas where there was considerable concern in the context of leaving mm -hmm. the EU was around employment uh, rights and worker protection and, of course, environmental uh, protection uh, as well. Yeah, well, you're right, and you read those initial pages and you, you look and reading it and thinking well how do you reconcile maintaining these high standards indeed highest of standards that talks about how we have in some instances the highest standards in Europe and also make things easy and deregulated for business yeah um, I mean there's there's lots in there I mean you could do a set, whole separate podcast on that but I suspect that would would put some people to sleep about whether or not we yeah. did have and have had particularly high standards it, it's like everything it depends who you compare yourself to I mean just quickly our race discrimination legislation was far more developed than has been the case in Europe. You look in the 1970s, but some of the advances and developments in the context of sexual discrimination and other areas probably further advanced in the European context. And, mm. and so the UK is quite 
been dragged screaming and kicking, but um, it's it's had to catch up. Yeah, yeah. Um, there's one point in, in the initial preamble I wanted to put to you both. You, you will have seen it, all three of us have a look at this consultation. And just to be clear, we're talking now about the retained EU employment law consultation paper. This is Department for Business and Trade, which came out within a few days of that 10th of May announcement. We've only had it a couple of days for the three of us to have a look at. But uh, it talks about these promises and commitments it's making in this area that both of you have just summarised, essentially. And it says, we will ensure retained EU employment law, for which certainly Department for Business and Trade is responsible, is preserved in areas where we are not either consulting on reforms, which is what we're about to talk about in relation to working time, regs, holiday and shooting, or revoking it because it's irrelevant. So it seems to me to be a pretty clear statement that we're not going to let anything fall away unless it's consulted on, and it, uh, uh, unless it's being actively consulted on, or it's totally irrelevant. So that talks to that new message, doesn't it? But it seem, seemingly what we're all saying is, at the same time, they feel this, this sense they feel the need to be very clear that we are making changes to try and appease those who will say that's completely is at odds with what the original bonfire of laws was going to be. Um, it's, it's, yeah, it's, it's, it's stood it, out it, for me as a statement. It, it is difficult. Um, and it would be difficult, obviously, for, I don't think it's a matter of the colour of the uh, political persuasion of the government. But I think it is difficult, as it were, to on the one hand saying we're, we're really making effective change here, but on the other hand saying we're not changing very much. Um, and that, that's essentially the, the two horses that they're trying to ride. But I mean, I think just looking at the three areas that you've mentioned, Adam, and just going perhaps first of all in relation to working time regs, the initial uh, ministerial uh, announcement appeared very much just to be focusing on keeping of records, the employer keeping records for night workers. Mm. What's in the consultation document is a lot, lot broader. Now, one could say, do you need to keep records in the context generally of the 48 hour? Uh, week, which obviously, as we and all the listeners will know, is not even as simple as 48 hours in a single week, but it's 48 hours on average over the relevant reference period, 17 weeks or longer. But I mean, if the government is saying it's not necessary for employers to keep records in the context, not just of night work, but also the 48 hour week, you, you, you can see how that's going to enable, some will say encourage, uh, unscrupulous employers at least to effectively say, just argue and say we haven't kept records and, and deny or argue that individuals have worked more than mm. 48 hours. So I think if you retain the substantive right, then actually the administrative, in inverted commas, burden or obligation that goes with it, as long as it's sensibly done, and I don't think the issue here is, is really a problem, if you then remove the need to keep the records, all you do is you encourage more litigation around mm. whether or not the person did or didn't work the hours. You don't have a mechanism for checking it. And actually, most employers will say, most responsible employers will say, well, the employee will remember or will argue which hours they've kept. So actually, it's in our interest to make sure that we've maintained a sensible, a sensible system. So uh, it, it's a bit of a, as usual, obviously, a bit of a bit of a kind of mixed uh, mixed bag. I mean, I think it's relatively easy with night workers or perhaps with younger workers where you might say it's really important from the point of view of protection that proper records are kept and that there is a formal obligation to keep those records. But as I say, in the context of something like the 48 hour uh, week, we're going to talk about holiday pay in a minute. Mm. Um, but again, where you will, as the employer, want to keep sensible records so that you can justify the basis upon which you've paid or not paid somebody either for working time or for holiday. Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, there's a great summary, and it's and the consultation invites until July, I think it is, feedback on 
these proposals on this one it talks specifically about do you agree or disagree that we should clarify you don't have to keep records so I encourage people to look at it anything from strongly dis strongly agree to don't know so you can be in, in any category from that in that range um, but I think you make a very good point about if nothing else you've got the point about rights for night workers etc in certain categories but wouldn't you want this record so that it removes an area of dispute you might end up in investigation over uh, you mentioned holiday pay let's jump to that um these high level announcements and um, the, the consultation paper gives us a little bit of a clearer picture on that as well doesn't it Stephen? there's two areas i think there you can maybe pick them up there's how do we express our holiday entitlement under the uk under 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 our law here and then how is holiday pay calculated and it's probably the latter of those two we should cover both that, that really is is looking particularly interesting and will be very interesting to employers who've Brazel been grappling with this issue right now and recently. The, yes, Adam. The, the 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 simpler one first, which is that the government is making um, the announcement that the EU entitlement to holiday pay, regulatory entitlement to holiday pay of twenty days, has always been supplemented in the UK by an additional eight days, and so in theory. EU law applies to the 28 days, as, forgive me, to the 20 days, and um, UK law applies to the eight days, which is anomalous, and they're, they're right about that. Um, and they're going to um, apply the same law to all 28 days. Uh, I'm not sure what great difference this makes. I don't know a single employer who differentiates between the, the 20 days derived from EU law and the additional eight from UK law, uh, but it's going to be one entitlement to 28 days and all your rights are going to apply equally to those 28 days as I can understand the proposal. And that seems to me to be eminently sensible. Hmm. The more interesting... Maybe a, a slight un a frustrating dusting down of your employment contracts that talk about splitting it between 20 days plus bank holidays and how does that fit with people who are working different patterns but i suspect that was probably needed at some point there are there are some employers there are now Stephen and i won't agree oh, for a moment so that's very good. good we thought this point was boring we're, we're going to get a bit of debate going on this point i think there are some employers who in some instances and contexts will draw a distinction between the 28 days plus the additional days um one of the areas is around carry forward one of the areas around carry forward also in the context of long-term sick uh, in terms of what the employee can can claim and, and as it were, be be paid for, um, and certainly one seen uh, contracts and situations they are more the exception rather than the norm, where it said you are deemed first of all to have taken this entitlement rather than that entitlement, um, and similarly, of course, if you get into the detail of dismissal for gross misconduct, what that means in the context text of uh, accrued holiday pay but but i completely accept the central premise of what uh, and agree with what stephen's saying which is that for most employers having two different systems and two different situations to calculate holiday pay is just seen too much like hard work not again because not least again because you have to explain it to the employee you know why are you paying me this and why don't i get that and by the time you've gone around that loop a few times with a handful of employees you, you just say it's not worth the it's not worth the candle yeah precisely and no, uh, let's um let's, let's look sorry Stephen. let's look at pay um and while while we're sort of coming close to time on our our whistle stop tour of this stuff and um this is around and this you and i we both touched on this before we started this discussion that it's a it's, it's actually page 17 for those of our listeners who 
like to delve into the consultation sums it up and it's holiday pay and it's saying you know at the moment you get your normal remuneration as set out under case law that can include commission bonuses overtime the british gas decision all of that case law we know plus we've got brazel and that stuff around. and then on the right with the proposal of what will happen next there are five words uh, one two three four five yes paid at basic pay rate does not need to reflect normal remuneration that is a massive change i would say on the face of it um, obviously subject to any exceptions that might come through in draft regulations but yes i i think that's right and that wasn't in the original announcement last week it's buried in this um, consultation document and i think that will be very interesting the government has an opportunity to greatly simplify what pay means for the purpose of calculating holiday pay and it looks like it may take up that um, that challenge uh, mm. but we'll but we'll see yeah, yeah. But for all our employers listening, I encourage them to look at the consultation and uh, who've been grappling with this and, and the anxiety around how do we properly calculate now. Um, encourage them to look at the consultation and put it, put a tick in the strongly agree box and hopefully it won't get watered down too much from here to to actual legislation, I guess, is, it would, would, would be my hope for the employers that, that, that I'm working with who is grappling with this issue. What are you suggesting there, Adam? That it should be at basic rate only, as as a as the almost overwhelming default position. Yes. Now I know you're now going to tell me what about though the person who does this. Yeah, absolutely. I I, dis I disagree. I think it should be an average over a period, um, because that most fairly reflects what their pay is and has been. Is this does this go to the then, Rustin? That we talked about moving away from EU case law and jurisprudence. I think it was from the EU position that we started this idea of a holiday is, is for rest and the arrangements for pay must not discourage people from taking it. Yeah. So we inevitably dislocate ourselves from that line of reasoning and go, no, it isn't. It just needs to be normal pay. And Mr. British Gas, who couldn't go on holiday because he would lose his commission and wouldn't be able to buy Christmas presents, will just have to make arrange his financial affairs better. <laughs> <laughs> yes. um, that's not my personal view. I know offense to Mr. British Gas. I can't remember his name. It's, it's, Lock. Lock. Mr. Lock. Forgive yeah. me, Mr. Lock, if you're listening. Uh, well, so I think there's two points. I think there's what should the calculation be? And I think you get obviously even to British Airways and other cases about allowances and particular allowances and whether they should be considered part of base pay. I think we've moved away generally in employment law from a situation if we ever had it, whereby the label becomes determinative of the substance of the right. So if I think in the context simply of employment status, the fact that we might call somebody a contractor doesn't make them a contractor. We look mm. at the substance. So I would similarly say that if pay nowadays is considered to include most entitlements beyond simply the basic rate of pay, um, that I would say that that should be included in the holiday pay calculation. But I appreciate that it's a continuum. And obviously, the modern move is towards talking about pension as deferred pay. So at what point does, does that fall into it? But I think we've got the other point here, just in, the, in this context, Adam, which is that it looks like we might now have more of a dislocation between the timing of taking of the leave and the timing of payment. Mm. Um, and you're right, certainly it was some of the EU-based jurisprudence that emphasised that the pay should pretty much be at the time that the leave is being taken. And one of the reasons for that is so as to 
encourage or not act as a deterrent to the individual to take yes. the leave. Yes, yes, indeed. Risk, I fear, of ending on a damp squib, full disclosure, in that the remaining item on our list is Tupi uh, and the changes to Tupi. And um, so it's a bit of a, a bit of a spoiler there for, for, for the listeners. But um, Stephen, why am I saying we might be ending on a damp squib when we talk about Tupi here? Well, well, Tupi is a piece of European regulation, which if you wanted to be radical, you could dispose of. What the government has decided to do, I think, sensibly is to tweak it in a very, very small way. And it simply eliminates the or it proposes to eliminate the employer's obligation to um, have employee representatives where the fees are between uh, 10 and 49. Um, I suspect that most employers who are contemplating a transfer undertaking with 40 or 50, 40 to 49 people in particular would want to have an employee representative anyway as a mechanism to deal with the number of employees that they have to they have to consult with. So I doubt that will have much impact on day-to-day um, -day practice with GP at all. Yeah, it may not be a certain, a, a solid ground to rely on as an employer as well if you're going to rely on the exception, if it's based on number of affected employees, it seems to me, because how many employees are affected by a transfer can be a point of dispute in and of itself. It tends to be pretty clear how many employees are on your payroll, just the current micro business route. Once you start saying, well, it's it's affected employees, if you're around the margins of that, where you're on the number, it only takes one person to pop up, what we call woodwork employee, and go, no, I was affected as well. And have you just then um, landed yourself with a protective award liability? You have, so you're bound to be cautious. And yeah. the regulation, I think, is a sensible one. So Tupi uh, remains more or less unamended. Okay, so wrapping up then, what's the, what's the big announcement? One big announcement from each of you. You may well agree on this. We've had a lot of agreements there. I haven't managed to... Uh, engender much disagreement and tough talk uh, fighting talk but go on Stephen. It, mine I think is how you calculate holiday pay mm. and the government will seek to simplify it it will look good in a news headline and employers will think that they're getting something as a result of leaving the EU and a whole load of case law which they find surprising when they read it in the newspapers will be abolished to the stroke whether that turns out to be the case or not doesn't really matter but politically I think that's uh, that's an interesting move. Mm -hmm. Rustin, anywhere else to go on that? Can you can you throw us something? Yeah. I mean you know 12.07% coming back. It, it, Stephen's picked a strong one there. I, 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 that's fine. I'm happy for Stephen to have that one. I think I'd pick up with what I was saying earlier which is it would be the irony of ironies that the UK government having made such a big deal about having an opt-out in the context of the 48-hour uh, working week when the legislation was first introduced mm. that we end up essentially through the back door by a lack of requirement to keep records for that right to effectively wither uh, one way or another mm. uh, or, or to be held, brought into disrepute so there, that's a bit more out there for you it's fat, yeah thought-provoking well done to pull that out from under the under the shadow of, of Stephen's holiday pay point. Uh, thank you both. Um, we've, so we're now left with 600 pieces of legislation proposed to be going on New Year's Eve, uh, rather than many, many more. 
and a slower process. So, but um, it did occur to me, chaps, that 600, if I'm right, is the number uh, rode into the valley of death um, in that, that famous poem. Um, let's hope that's not a, a foreboding coincidence in, in this instance. We will, of course, be come back to this subject nearer to, to New Year's Eve, I'm sure, to then touch again on um, what clearer position we're in regarding our transition away from EU law. But um, in the meantime, uh, just remains for me to thank you, Stephen Tenhove, Rustin Tartar, for your time. Thanks to everybody for listening, and we will see you soon on another podcast. You can follow us on our uh, LinkedIn uh, page and web page, and they'll be reading this to materials on the website as well. Thanks for listening. Thank you.